Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This is Dr. Alan Ho, and we are broadcasting with thanks to our sponsors on continuing coverage on COVID-19 from around the world. I'm Alan Ho from Philadelphia, and my co-host today is Dr. Ehab El Reyes from the Eye Institute in Cairo, Egypt. Ehab, do you want to introduce our guests this morning or this today? Thank you, Alan, and uh, good morning to everybody. I'd like to uh, welcome our host, our host today. We'll be joined by Dr. Matteo Forlini from San Marino Hospital in Italy and Dr. Monica Adrian from Lund University in Sweden. They'll all be joining us in the great discussion in COVID-19 and how we manage things all around the world. Alan? Uh, the, the pandemic uh, has progressed uh, at different paces around the world. And Matteo, in, in your country, the, the pandemic in Italy, of course, started sooner uh, than, for example, the United States, Egypt, or in Sweden. Give us a little bit of a sense of where the country is now and where you are now uh, in your thinking and, and your experiences. Sure. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. And uh, I can tell you our experience. In Italy, you know, um, the pandemic started uh, in the very beginning of March uh, with huge uh, catastrophic uh, events, especially in the north part of Italy. So near Milan, the region is called Lombardia. And actually it's uh, the most, uh, the, the richer region in Italy. So that was a very catastrophic events uh, only for economic reasons because uh, Lombardia and Milan area is one of the most uh, productive region in all Italy. Um, then uh, from the north moved uh, also to Emilia Romagna. Emilia Romagna is another region, is the region where I live, where my family lives. So actually, I am in the part of Italy that uh, mostly was uh, hit by the pandemics. Uh, now we are in the middle of May and actually the situation improved. Um, but still uh, Lombardia and uh, Milano area uh, is still uh, the most uh, um, uh, weak area. Uh, other cities near Milan very, very, um, uh, where, the, where the coronavirus really created uh, uh, huge problems and uh, caused a lot of uh, death was uh, Bergamo, uh, Brescia. You know, these, these, these are not uh, big cities, but uh, we, uh, they, they had a, a huge uh, number of uh, victims. Impressive. So maybe maybe you saw on the on the news uh, there are uh, a quite popular, uh, uh, very very sad popular uh, scene that uh, the victims in Bergamo were so many that uh, the cemetery was full. So they had to carry the bodies and with the many um, vehicles to move the the, the bodies. <clears throat> in other villages. So um, again, uh, I can tell you that uh, Bergamo, Brescia, Milan, and all the north part uh, of Italy, Lombardia, still uh, are uh, dealing with uh, a lot of problems. But uh, the reaction of the, of the health systems, and especially of the local governor, uh, was, very, was very good, actually. Uh, as, as Italian, I can be proud of uh, the reaction to this uh, catastrophe because uh, in a very few weeks, in few weeks, uh, people in Milan 
managed to, to uh, created a new hospital in in few weeks and uh, so in um, in in a few weeks they created many many more uh, uh, beds so many more uh, uh, rooms for patients also in march uh, Italian Prime Minister, you know, Conte is the uh, Italian Prime Minister, made uh, an announcement uh, looking for uh, more medical volunteers, also for um, medical uh, students. So at the beginning of March, uh, uh, people uh, without graduation, just medical students could uh, enroll <coughs> as volunteers and many, many young people uh, answered to this call. So many, many young uh, guys and girls uh, went to Milano area to give help in this uh, situation. Uh, not only Milano, a little south, uh, other cities like Parma, Modena. My, my city, Ravenna, also was hidden and Rimini was uh, also um, uh, very, very damaged. M many people, uh, many people died, especially in March and April too. The, uh, the images from Italy uh, and China were, were among the, the most vivid to give the world a sense on how serious this pandemic was or could be. And, um, and those images from Bergamo or from the news uh, feeds of people, uh, you know, at home with their family members that had passed away and still not being able to be moved to um, a place for burial were, were very vivid. And in, in Sweden, the, what the world has been looking at in a large sense is something very different, and, and that is giving us a peek at how to reopen, not the damage, but how maybe one society is approaching uh, the pandemic. Monica, do you want to speak a little bit to that? Yeah. Yes. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yes, uh, I, I know that there is quite a lot of talks about Sweden all around the world nowadays. Uh, in, in practice, I don't think that it's really that uh, different to many other countries. Of course, we are no, not have had those restrictions really as other countries, but uh, I think that most people in Sweden, they are prone to follow the recommendations from the health authorities. So uh, we don't see that much people walking around in the city, and if you go to a restaurant and such things, the, the tables and the seats there are quite separated and uh, also the university, they are closed, physically closed. They do it at home and also the um, high schools. But uh, if we go for the hospitals, uh, we had done quite a lot to that already. Now I am living in the south of Sweden and uh, we don't have seen so many cases here yet. Most of them are in, ca in the capital city of Sweden, in Stockholm, and that city is about uh, 600 kilometers from here, where I live. And now we can see that the uh, figures they are going down. There are not so many infected people and not so many dying people in Sweden nowadays, and especially not in Stockholm. But there is a big increase in other regions in Sweden coming. So we don't know really where this will end. But we have prepared ourselves in, at my hospital. So we have started a new COVID-19 ward, but there are no COVID patients yet so far. But we have um, extended the capacity if it should be that we should get many more cases here, of course. But if you look at the retina patients, uh, we have done something in Sweden because we have, we have an organization, a national organization for ophthalmologists that are dealing with treating and interested in medical retina. And we came out quite early with guidelines for these patients. So we have put up national guidelines, which one we think it's early to treat during this uh, pandemic and uh, which one we could postpone. For example, um, patients going under our system for diabetic retinopathy screening program, we don't see those patients just now. We 
defer their um, appointments. And also we are not doing any or much less cataract surgery, for example. And we have guidelines for how to deal with, for example, diabetic um, macular edema patients. We have said that uh, that's not that urgent if they are not quite um, very active. So if we have a stable diabetic macular edema patient, we could postpone it for two months or at, at longest for four months. And we are doing the, quite the same with the BRVO patients. But when we come to the AMD patients with wet AMD, we think it's very urgent that they will have their timely injections. And also the same thing for those with central vein occlusion. And um, well, that's some sm small things from this organization that we have taken a national guidelines um, decision about. Um, so if you ask me about what we're doing in Sweden, I know that people talk quite a lot of of it, but uh, if you go out in the city here in Sweden, I don't think it differs that very much from other cities. Of course, it's not quite locked down. It has not been quite locked down um, ever, but uh, but we are. I think we could behave ourselves in many in many cases here. That's a very then, interesting question about or comment about your societal structure and the way people behave. We'll definitely come back to that issue because the. You know, the news uh, about how Sweden is uh, not reopening, they've essentially stayed open uh, in the context of, you know, a society that is, uh, has high trust and also is, is, is listens and, and is obedient, so to speak, is, is yeah. interesting. I just, I just want to add one thing more here because I think that also we are, we are, uh, the politics in Sweden, they are listening to those, to the, to the science in these uh, in these things, and they are not just acting on themselves. Sometimes I think that people are the politics; they do what they just find themselves are the right thing to do, and they are not always listening to uh, the expertise between it behind it. What's wrong with drinking bleach or Clorox? <laughs> yeah, you can tell me. <laughs> Ehab, what's happening? Ehab, what's happening in Egypt? Well, for uh, for a big country like Egypt, we're 100 million, 105 million people. So we had a partial lockdown starting early March. That was applicable on most of governmental facilities, like getting a driver license for all these uh, things. But medical facilities were opened, and that was the challenge: how we're we going to keep the medical facilities with their power open then. There was a curfew also that started at 7 p.m. because that's the timing when people start going out after work or going to restaurants, uh, uh, things like that. So that part had a curfew to decrease the, the people getting together after work. The decision for that was keeping everything open in the morning. They can, you know, work is ongoing. People still have to go to work and things like that. But behind it was decreasing numbers, and that was the strategy. For those going to governmental facilities, only 20% of the team going there to try to cover that sector. Medical facilities, all the teams were there. And that was the challenge for us, like going to the hospitals, we had to be there. In that part, we had to decrease our numbers. Like in outpatients, we only see 20%. The Eye Institute used to see around 300 patients a day. It was cut down to maybe 50 or even 60 patients. The OR was the same thing. Instead of having 40 surgeries a day, we went down even from eight to nine patients. But it was open to everybody, elective and emergency also. And it was each region to treat itself. There was no exchange of patients from one city to another. Each, each city is locked down by itself. So you had to treat patients, whether elective or emergency, but decrease the numbers. That was for the, till the end of March. Beginning of May, we increased the uh, the uh, opening to more than 60%. So now governmental buildings are all open all day. They start closing at 5. So at 5, you don't have any uh, facility job-wise. And shops now are extended to 9 p.m. So as other people think, 9 p.m., it's, it's, you know, that's not a lockdown, but it's a true curfew. But there's no, not, no people are allowed to be in the streets from 9 p.m. till uh, 6 a.m., the second morning, because that was the peak in Egypt where people start hanging out. So it's different regional-wise. I think it's pretty much the same maybe in Italy or in Spain, people like going out late. But uh, region-wise, 
governments have to look what they have and the, the physical activity of people to try to cut that down. So region-wise, I think it's different from one country to another. Figure-wise, I don't think it was bad because overall we have like 11,000, those that uh, we reached uh, as of today around 11,000, which is not much compared to the total population, 100 million. That is, we have like 600 uh, people dead from the disease, recovery around uh, 3,000. So there is pretty much a, um, a good con a commitment to that and people are still doing uh, well with that. The question is, when we are we going to open totally is still variable. The disease is something different for all the world and nobody can have 100% plan how we're going to go from here. What's going to be tomorrow or the week after? It's just a trial and error. Most of the countries, I think, we're doing trial and errors when to open, what activities we should resume or how large we're going to resume. Some of the uh, comments you make are striking in comparison to Italy, death rates and uh, death rates here in the United States. So you said 100 million people in Egypt and you said your death rate is under 1,000. You said 690 people dead. I think the only, the only reliable statistic in many ways is really the death rate because whether or not you're antibody positive or a carrier or affected is, is very, very difficult to discern because of asymptomatic carriers and also uh, false positive or false negative testing. So Egypt has uh, a very large population and a low death rate. Italy has a large population and a high death rate. And the United States is somewhere in between. We, as retina specialists, care for those groups of patients that are among the most vulnerable since, as, <clears throat> as, Dr., as Monica pointed out, you know, we're going to see our patients with wet AMD and retinal vein occlusions and try and care for them even in the shadow of, of COVID. I want to shift away from that because I think we all agree that we need to protect those patients and those strategies are important. But I want to talk about since many of you have countries that are not so affected, Monica and Ehab, about children and schools and how what, what the thinking is there, it's, it's very, um, you know, in the United States, in contradistinction to Sweden, it's a very heterogeneous uh, country, which, which is, uh, provides a lot of strength in certain situations. But in this situation, the thinking of reopening the economy and saving uh, public education and schools, kids need food. food, food is often obtained at schools. What's the strategy with children and what has it been? Monica? Uh, of the children, but um, our children, they go to school up to uh, in the, our ground school or primary school up to they are uh, 15 years old. So, and then for the other ones in high school, or between 15 and uh, 19 years old, they do it from home. So have a, a distant um, education or what you call it. And, um, so I, I think it's working quite, I mean, for, the, for the, the smaller ones up to 15 years old, there's no difference as to before. Perhaps some people, they are a bit afraid of letting their children go to school. So that, it has been reported that more have been stayed at home than usually. But I don't think that's a really a big problem. But we have seen problems uh, for the high school um, uh, pupils because uh, those that come from families, perhaps the immigrants that don't know Swedish that well and that are low educated parents, they will not have the possibility to follow their education uh, through the computer as the other one has. So it might be that it will be uh, some sort of um, difference there in the future for them. But now it's, um, it's summertime, so and then we'll see for the autumn what will happen then, if they will start up to open up even this high school. And even for the university, I don't know really. It's not decided yet. Matteo, uh, what about the children uh, schooling, uh, thinking ahead to fall universities? What's, what's the temperature there over in, in your area? Well, actually in Italy, it's total lockdown. And uh, now in these last weeks, some services are beginning to work, but very few. Schools, 
from uh, kindergarten to high school to university, it's all lockdown. And so all the children, students, teenagers, uh, and even university students, they are um, uh, doing um, uh, Zoom, uh, Zoom um, classes, even uh, children in uh, primary school, because uh, I know that, uh, okay, my, I have two children, but they are very, very young. So four years old and one year old. So they are not studying. <laughs> but uh, I, I know my friends that uh, they have uh, children uh, in uh, primary school and uh, they do everyday classes with Zoom or Skype and that's it. Also, uh, a lot of uh, 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 workers in Italy are doing smart working for, with distance. Um, restaurants are uh, closed. Some restaurants are doing um, uh, takeaway services. So you just order the food and you take away home. Uh, but uh, every week uh, in this moment, uh, there are uh, some uh, steps forward. So probably on Monday, in two days, there will be a second phase. So some uh, sectors of the of, of jobs uh, are still uh, reopening. Maybe some um, restaurants and maybe some um, bars by the beach, for example. You know, uh, in, in, in my area in Italy, uh, now is the period of, uh, of summer almost. So a lot of people are working with tourism and uh, a lot of people are uh, in big economic crisis for this. So they are trying to reopening uh, restaurants and bars by the beach with new rules. So for example, they have to keep the tables very far each other and even uh, going to the beach, it will be completely different. So they can put a uh, few umbrellas very distant each other and mm. you have to book in advance. So you, you cannot go to the beach. You just have to book your reservation, which day, which time. So it's a, it's a new phase very difficult, but uh, in Italy, it's uh, very important to create a, a new uh, start because the economic crisis is growing. And uh, uh, yeah, that those that those are good insights. Let's bring it back to our patients, uh, our retina patients that we're seeing now. And Ehab, what are you doing in your clinic in your operating room uh, for seeing those patients that you think are urgent? Let's say in the clinic. We have to focus on how we're doing things all around the world different. And that question is not just for me, but it goes to the rest of the panel because I'm sure that we're doing things different. At least on my end, we're decreasing the numbers of patients to be seen every day. We cut, we did a big cut down instead of like in the ICU, for example, from 300 only to 60 patients. So those coming to the retina clinic, around 30 patients a day seen in like five rooms. So the least minimal exposure to a single patient to time to the, uh, the space he's been in. We all wear our uh, gowns like it's an OR. So it's not just wearing our, our, our coat or anything, but you wear masks and sometimes wear a full screen while examining these patients because you don't know who's negative and who's positive going into the clinic. So we assume that everybody is positive and we take the precautions of that. In between each patient, the whole room is re-sterilized again. So we have a team outside. Once the patient goes out, somebody comes in, cleans the room before the second patient comes in. And we try to decrease the time that each patient is allowed, maybe by 50% compared to the, to the, uh, for the era of the corona. So it's mainly, since it's not just the, the emergencies, but we're seeing different patients, we don't spend too much time with every patient. And whatever we need, we give him as a written instruction that they can read in his house once he goes back if there's any more notes that I need to tell him. So at least we cover the patient's needs regarding his disease. He can read that once he goes back. He can even interview later on if he has questions with the physician over uh, Zoom or any other uh, type of application is available if he has further questions. So we try to concentrate that. The problem is also the, the medical facility, the staff. 
the secretaries outside, how they approach the patients, how do they give them the paper, and try to change things. Instead of being too close and direct communication, how to give them this thing and tell them the next appointment, things like that, it seems strange and different for patients, especially those coming from the suburbs. It's not the usual way that they used to deal with it. So I think that the whole team shares into how to decrease the incidence of exposure and contamination with it. Monica? Yes, in Sweden, we have, um, for the first thing, we have uh, uh, rescheduled many patients. So uh, I agree with, uh, with uh, what's his name? Yeah, I agree with the, with the talker before here, that we also have reduced the, the amount of patients coming to the clinic. And uh, also we have reduced the patients to the injections sessions. Before we had about 30 per session, and now we have about 20 per session. And the first thing that will meet the patient coming to the clinic is a uh, hostess that will check that they don't have any symptoms that could be related to COVID-19. And they are only allowed to bring uh, some one more accompanying person with them to the clinic. And then when they go to the waiting room, they will find that every other seat is, uh, is empty. So they, we have spaced out uh, in the waiting rooms. And uh, then we do want to minimize the time they will have in the clinic. So we, in, so because of that, we have, um, if they, most people with AMD, for example, they go for treat and extend in Sweden. And then we have taken the last interval that was stable and put the patients on that interval. So they will have that as a fixed interval instead. And when doing so, we don't, not, we don't need to do any examinations sometimes. We don't even do OCT in many of the patients. We just give them their injection and then they go leave the clinic again. And uh, we just do uh, visual acuity measurements if it's really important, if the patient complains over visual loss or something, disturbances emission. And um, so, uh, and still, it's like that, that many people that do cancel their appointments themselves, really, because they're afraid of this uh, mm. sickness, that they are afraid of coming to the hospital. And most of them are 70 plus, I mean, they're older people. And so I think it's also very important that we will get in touch with these patients and talk to them, even by, either by phone or by a letter, and tell them that it is important to get these injections, because they could get um, a visual acuity that could not be restored otherwise. So uh, you, You're speaking about it, uh, talking to the patients and communicating with the patients, even though they may not come in. Yeah, if uh, they're not coming. I, I mean, it's very important to communicate to them that they really need this injection. They can't wait for one month or two months to get it, especially not when they have AMD, I mean. Right. And, and in, in a lot of medicine, the, you know, the, the forces of, of COVID-19 are forcing and accelerating telemedicine, telehealth visits. In retina, it's not so useful right now because we can speak and reassure the patient, maybe check a vision remotely, but we don't have we, we don't can't have, give them the injection anyhow. <laughs> give them the injection. We don't have homo CT. Homo CT is coming though. Homo CT is coming. Maybe since uh, Matteo, you, you know, in Italy, it's Italy's been hit hard. Are you doing any telehealth, teleretina, telemedicine with your patients? And if so, how are you doing that? Well, actually, as you said, this COVID situation is accelerating the telemedicine uh, trend that was already growing. So uh, in my hospital, my hospital is quite small, so we don't have a, a network of telemedicine. But I know that in bigger cities, like uh, in Milan or uh, uh, Rome probably, they, are, they were uh, building a, a network of telemedicine, mostly based on OCT, and uh, fundus photograph. So usually there is a big hospital and uh, small hospitals in the in the territory. So Satellite. yeah. So in this way, one one or two retina specialists from the big hospital can receive information from uh, small uh, satellite hospitals, and so they can just follow up or check. Uh, diabetic patients or AMD. Avoiding 
patients traveling, you know, all, all the time. I can tell you that uh, in my hospital, when uh, one month ago, I had to go to operating room for two uh, retinal cases, two urgent retinal cases, one retinal detachment, and one was uh, removal of uh, silicon oil after uh, six, seven months that uh, the patient could, could not wait more. When I went to the hospital, since uh, I was missing from, uh, for uh, three, four weeks, so uh, I was tested with the immunoglobulin G and the immunoglobulin M before entering to the operating room. And uh, the rules were very strict. So I went to the operating room, but I was stopped. They, 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 do, they did to me the blood test. I, I had to wait half an hour, almost, almost an hour for the, for the results. And when I received the results, they told me, okay, you are negative for EGMM, uh, you're negative for immunoglobulin G, so you can go to operate. And these rules are for every surgeon. So as, as a surgeon, I cannot go in the operating room without uh, doing the test. And if I was positive, I don't know, probably uh, I don't know. Maybe another another, another uh, surgeon, not me. Yeah, you can't do you can't do tele tele surgery, but it sounds like you're working on telehealth with fundus photograph, OCT imaging, and satellites, and then feeding that information down. I think that's I think that's where we're going around the world. I, I would be interested for those that are out there. Uh, listening and watching and uh, globally if if they would uh, send us a comment about their telehealth experiences how about you ehab any telemedicine teleretina i don't think it, as of now for retina surgeon it has a real significant thing but maybe for consultation or giving feedback on a visit we sometimes communicate with the patient if he didn't have enough answers to his case we can communicate with him but not for the sake of his examination let yeah. me take you to another step, Alan. Now we see patients and we, we see that some of them are beaten surgery. What patients do you take to the OR in the OVID? Is it just the emergency cases or even just the, uh, uh, the uh, elective patients? And what's different? What's different in the OR? Do you take special measures, the same anesthesia, the procedures? I think there's a lot of things that change and we have learned doing things different. Yeah, so let me, let me respond from, from the United States, Philadelphia. We are... 90 miles down the road from a major hotspot, metropolitan New York City. In Philadelphia, our ICU beds have not been over, overwhelmed. Um, the, the social distancing, wearing masks, hand washing, public health guidelines, these principles in handling a pandemic seem to have been working right now. From a defensive standpoint in a medical care, specifically retina, we are following many of the same things that Matteo and Monica and you have described. We are pushing patients out. We are streamlining patients in the clinic to minimal procedures, minimal time, minimal exposures. We have several offices where there are two doctors in an office. We break those technicians and doctors into team A and team B, and they stay with those doctors so that in case there's a contamination, uh, those teams stay together and we're not going to wipe out an entire office of two teams and two doctors. In, a, in the operating room, we're doing only emergency or medically essential or urgent patients. We're starting to think about it. Will's Eye Hospital starting some elective procedures, let's say macular hole surgery, which normally I try and do within four weeks rather than four months, uh, which I think is important for medical outcomes. But we're start we've deferred those patients to do retinal detachments, infections, et cetera. And our surgery volumes have, have plummeted. I'm about 10% of what my usual surgical load is. Specifically in the operating room, as you described, Ehab, Every patient for me is pre presumed to be COVID positive. We don't have the test uh, antigen or, or antibody test that Matteo talks about with 
that kind of turnaround time. I think we're going to be testing our elective surgery patients, elective for antigen positivity. Uh, in some ways, I think that's helpful. In some ways, I think it's not so helpful because there are false negatives. And if you treat every patient as if they were COVID positive, I think you provide the greatest safety for your operating room team. In terms of what we do in the operating room, we're very careful, of course, about general anesthesia. Intubation, extubation is aerosolizes. Um, and, you know, the, the, this messenger RNA virus uh, is transmitted by droplets, but also can just linger in the air. So the turnover times in the operating room are much longer so that air exchanges can occur to reduce the load of potential infectious virus. Some surgeons will use N95 masks in the clinic. Uh, I use a regular OR mask, an N95 mask. I find myself touching my face all the time. So I'll just use an operating room, regular operating room mask. Um, I'll give you a hint for couple hints in the clinic and the operating room. In the operating room, if we were going to do a local anesthesia, we would have the patient sedated and then we would get very close to the patient to give a local anesthetic. Now we don't do that until the patient is fully draped and then we'll do a cut down block, if you will. The surgeons know what I mean by that. On the field, we'll do a cut down block instead of an injection before the patient is draped. In the clinic, we have slit lamp shields, we have gloves, uh, I wear a regular OR mask, uh, I'm not close to the patient, we minimize the, the companions, we have companions wait in the parking lot in a virtual waiting room. You know, these are the strategies um, that we're doing in the clinics and also in the operating room. But things are starting, as I said initially, we're close to a hotspot in New York, we're in control, but we're going to start thinking about opening up a little, little bit at a time. And it's incremental. Um, reopening is a big issue in a very diverse country like the United States, even all the nations here that are represented. Um, I think the reopening strategies need to be local because one size doesn't fit all. Alan, you answered the question about now there is a different way that you give the anesthesia when you think that he is positive. Definitely after draping is one way. But what about the surgery itself? You sit with, the, with wearing a shield because if the patient was positive, if they tell you you have a patient that is positive, would you sit on the optics wearing a shield? I faced that problem and I, I had a, a hard time. Then I thought that maybe we might be looking at 3D screen might be easier for patients like this. You don't come so close to the patient. The optics, if you're wearing a shield, maybe looking at the screen lying back is a better chance. So there are a lot of things that we're doing or trying to accommodate in our OR to decrease the exposure to the patient or trying to do things different. So let's ask Monica and Matteo. If you did have like for a patient that is emergency retinal attachment and you know that he was diagnosed positive, are you going to operate differently? What are you going to do? The same question goes to you, Alan. Uh, yes, um, I, I can answer because I think that if there is, yes, I think we would do the, the surgery. I'm not doing that myself any longer. So, but I think that uh, they will do it if it's uh, urgent, yes. So yeah. and then we have to clean that room anything? especially well afterwards, of course. But, uh, and then also in the clinic, we have a COVID-19 room for for patients that we do think that we really need to examine and they could have symptoms of COVID-19, even if it's not diagnosed with COVID-19. So we, we put them into a non-clean COVID-19 room or what you call it. So but a surgery, I think, yes, for the retinal detachment. Otherwise the patient will lose its sight. Would that make a difference, doing a buckle, doing a vitrectomy, or you do the same procedure? You don't want to come too close to the patient. You better sit where, on the microscope or do a regular buckle. Does it make a decision difference, how you but manage you, patients? Yeah. But, you know, I'm not doing it myself, so I can't answer your question, really. <laughs> what about you, Matteo? I, I agree, and uh, I would operate uh, as, as usual because uh, uh, I consider... Uh, the, the, the urgent surgery, like, like we always do. You know, usually uh, we use this, of course, uh, this is the, 
protection. We, we also use uh, this kind of uh, instrumentation. Actually, if I have to choose between scleral, uh, scleral buckle or vitrectomy, I, I make my decision not thinking of coronavirus, just thinking of the surgical approach. And of course, uh, we have to be lucky also. <laughs> you know, in Italy now, the health minister name is uh, uh, Mr. Speranza. Speranza in Italian means hope. So, <laughs> I don't know if it's a good coincidence. Yeah. The, um, what about you? Do you do things different now in the OR? Uh, first of all, I, I agree with um, Matteo that whatever is the best choice for surgery for that individual patient is what I'll do, uh, irrespective of whether or not they have COVID positivity or not. Um, you bring up a very interesting point. When we are operating on patients and we are sitting at a microscope right here and the patient's head is right here, we are very close to those patients. And there's no question that even in a draped situation that there is aerosolization of the patient's breath that comes out into the surgical field. We see it. For example, when we're using a microscope and a wide-angle viewing system, we'll, we'll see fogging of the lens, and it comes from the patient uh, that where the drape is escaping some, some moisture and air. So you, you mentioned the other ways to, to operate, which is a 3D monitor, and glasses and operating maybe a little bit farther away from the patient. And that would be, if I had, if I had that ability to do that, I would encourage surgeons to think about operating with the uh, 3D systems like the Ingenuity to just get a, a little more spacing. But, but the usual protections, the usual surgery, whatever is best for that patient is what we're, we're gonna choose, what I'm gonna choose for, for that particular case. Um, we, we do have a question from uh, Jiro Kogo, uh, and maybe Ehab, you can address this. What do you expect, this is a broad question, what do you expect the future outlook of each country in Africa will be? Well, I must say that there is no, nobody knows 100% plan to go ahead with. But what we see in Africa, it seems like the upper part of Africa is more affected than the uh, uh, south part of Africa. So there's different variation. And it seems like this all over the world. I mean, the United States, Europe, all the way to China. But the more north you go, the more south you go, we didn't see a real true outbreaks. So the same thing is in Africa. We think that the, the northern part of Africa is definitely more affected than the, the south part of Africa. But maybe it's how the people deal with this. It's different. Though you can't have rules how to do it. We just, depending upon social distancing, what we've learned. But what is a 100% true plan for the future is going to be like guessing for the time being. So I can't answer that question totally in saying what what's the, the future is going to be or how it's going to look like. It's just a day by day people building information, how to deal with it and how to stay safe and how to get over it. Until we have a vaccine for that, that question might not be answered. That's a good, really good response. The, um, there, there are clearly differences in progression of the pandemic, differences in political systems and approaches, and certainly differences in those that are most vulnerable uh, in different areas. The urban dwellers tend to be more uh, obviously affected because of transmission. Um, in the United States, a lot has been discussed about those that are socially, socioeconomically disadvantaged. Um, that falls upon, for example, more uh, African-Americans and other minorities in the United States that are affected at a higher rate. In a country that's perhaps more homogeneous, uh, Monica, are you seeing disparities in those affected? Um, do you see it more in this? You mentioned you see it more in the urban setting. Um. The perspectives for the after this lockdown or this period, you mean? Yeah. Um, we don't know really yet because we're not 
we don't know if there will come a second breakout this autumn or anything. So I think it's difficult to really figure out. But uh, for the plan, I think we have to plan for the hospital and for the patients anyhow. Uh, really, perhaps we have to continue with the shorter examinations because we will have many more patients to look <laughs> to look at and examine after this period is over. I mean, so uh, we have perhaps to prepare for that and we will just do more just OCTs and photos and uh, and such things that would run faster for us than seeing every patient at a clinic in the normal way. Definitely is going to change the way we care for patients. Yes, in the I think so. I think so too. Matteo, any, any comments, final comments? Well, a final comment, uh, uh, maybe you already know, but uh, I just uh, saw on uh, PubMed, this is a, a mm. paper just published on the Lancet, Lancet uh, Journal, and it's uh, retinal findings in patients with uh, COVID-19. So it's just a very, very, very short article, just a page. Uh, they analyzed uh, nine patients uh, COVID positive, and they found that uh, uh, there are common findings in um, in the OCT, showing uh, some uh, um, cotton wool, cotton wool, uh, and subtle micro hemorrhage between the inner uh, plexiform layer and the ganglion cell layer. So the authors just found. Uh, common sign of the of these layers at OCT and fundus uh, photograph but uh, with no visual acuity worsening and no signs of inflammation so it's just uh, findings but no symptoms that, that's it Alan I have one question for all of you before we end this session if we have a resurgence again next winter do you have any further plan that are we going to do? How are we going to take more precautions? And what are you looking from the industry to give us if this happens? Special masks that we wear, special things in the OR. What are we asking the industry to give us if there is something again next winter? Uh, maybe I'll take that one. I think that, uh, I think that we will likely have a resurgence. Uh, this, is the, this is the behavior, the public health, uh, history of these kind of uh, viral pandemics is that you get a peak and then some, you know, secondary recurrences over time. Hopefully it'll be muted. The fear is, is that when it comes this winter uh, in the United States, that it will be coincident with the influenza uh, typical outbreaks and that'll compound the morbidity and mortality. I think what we're looking for in industry and actually regulation is something that's already happening. And that is ways to take care of patients more safely to protect not only the care providers and our, our, our staff, but also the patients. A 75, 85 year old patient is exactly the patient that doesn't want to be coming out and being exposed to an environment where they could be infected. Those are our patients. And so these satellites, um, these satellites where there's imaging only, like Matteo discussed, where a patient might come to a, uh, a satellite area where they get a fundus photograph and OCT, uh, and then it's sent in to be evaluated with consultation. Yes, you need to come in for a face-to-face visit or you don't, is a good way to begin to prioritize which patients should be coming in. The injection patients need to come in. We'll do that. We have to begin to think about those other, other patients with diabetes, uh, dry macular degeneration that are also at risk. The regulatory agencies are starting to begin to think about approval of accelerated approval of technologies that'll help. For example, home OCT is something that's very big here in the United States and also around the world. And these technologies are going to be looked at as strategies for patients um, to monitor even a wet AMD patient to say, yes, your scan looks good. You can extend instead of Monica's fixed interval in the shadow of COVID. So I think we're looking at, um, as always, uh, the ecosystem of the retina care providers, our industry partners, new opportunities for 
uh, industry to create value are, of course, our pharmacologic, our uh, drug industry partners are all working towards um, helping us as retina specialists take care of patients and ophthalmologists and, and medicine in general. So um, I, I really do want to thank you all. Respect your time, uh, Ehab, as as my co-host, I, kn I know those night curfews are very difficult for you because I know your patterns of behavior having spent time with you. And um, you too, Mateo and Monica, it's nice to meet you. I want to thank our audience. I want to thank our sponsors. This particular series is, uh, has a lot of genius behind it because it connects us. Uh, there are different political systems, different areas of the world. Uh, but we all, as, as the pandemic has shown us, all, are all very tied together. So helping each other can, can be really helpful, not only to us that we're seeing here, but all the people that are on the, on the production. So thank you all. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.